that's Karen Carpenter. She grew to worldwide fame in the 60s and 70s and is probably best known today for her cover of Superstar that we just heard. Karen Carpenter was one of my father's favorite singers. Her music plays in the background of many of my childhood memories, and I very distinctly remember my dad telling me about her battle with anorexia, still mourning the shortness of her career. She died at 32, and yet despite that, despite that short length of time that she was making music, her voice lives on and somewhat surprisingly has had a rather big impact on the queer community. Karen Tongson is our guest today. She grew up in the Philippines and was named after Karen Carpenter. Karen Tongson has a new book called Why Karen Carpenter Matters. We talk about that and also a lot about gender. Karen Tongson has fielded the question, are you a boy or a girl for all of her life? And says that sometimes it's just easier to let people think that she's a man. From Luminary Media, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this is LGBTQ&A. So your new book is called Why Karen Carpenter Matters. Mm-hmm. I want to start with that big question just because I think it provides important context for people. So can you tell us why queer people and marginalized people are so connected to her? Well, I think that one of the things that I explained from the very beginning of the book is that, you know, there are a lot of different reasons that music critics or cultural historians would say why a particular musician matters. But for me, because I was named after Karen Carpenter, I really wanted to dive into why she mattered to me. So many people have written so many stories about her. And so why she matters to me also, I felt, happened to intersect with why different queer people, immigrants, queer people of color, were invested in her as well. And since the whole book answers that question, I'll give you a couple of little tidbits, if you want, just to give you a hint of how I begin to kind of formulate that argument of why she matters. I'd I'd love that just because, for people listening, your connection to her is more than just the fact that you were named after her. Yeah, it's more the fact that I was named after her. My mom was all also a singer who came from a musical family, who also had a brother who played piano. But but for LGBTQ plus people, I think that the Carpenters and Karen and her music really matter because I think of them as almost like Latter-day Torch songs. They're expressions of longing and unrequited love in a way that I think a lot of queer people could relate to because for the longest time, so many of us lived in a space where we never knew or never thought that anyone would ever love us, you know, or or like that we might be in this game alone. And that music, I think, kind of provided a bit of a soundtrack to that, as well as with her own various kind of secret struggles and the kind of with her with her anorexia uh, and the kind of private privacy of that pain, the kind of closetedness of that. So, I mean, there are a range of different reasons, and that's just a little bit of it. You write a fair amount about her code switching yeah. that happened in terms of her gender, Oh yeah, especially when she was growing up, but also with music producers. Is that something that the audience would have been aware of, though, at that time? I actually don't think so. I feel like, you know, the Carpenters were very tightly managed act. Those aspects of their story would have been less available because, you know, Karen was such a tomboy when she was growing up. She was a real roughhouser. She played drums before she was a singer, and that was a huge part of her story. But what people ended up seeing eventually is a kind of demure girl in a strangely frilly Victorian frock singing love songs up in front, right? Yeah. And and you mentioned her anorexia, which she ultimately died from complications. complications. Yeah. Yeah. How old were you when she died? 
I was 10 years old. Or I, actually, I was 9 going on 10. So she died like a few months before my 10th birthday. Wow. So for people who have a close friend or family member who dies when they're young, mm-hmm. it changes how they think about life and death and their own mortality, yeah. even though you didn't know her personally. Did it affect you in that way? Oh, for sure. I mean, I think that one of the things I talk about is that she loomed so large as a figure in our own family's cosmology. Like, it was almost like hearing that some kind of relative had passed away. But also, I think that, you know, at that age anyway, you know, Wordsworth wrote all sorts of poems about it. Now we are seven, right? Like, around that age, you start to discover mortality and you start to cultivate a fear of mortality. I don't know. Maybe I was just a morbid kid. You think it happens that young? <laughs> I think it does happen that young because, you know, you maybe start to lose your first pets. You know, that's around the time that, like, especially if you have older grandparents, they start to pass, or, like at least great-grandparents around, you know. And so I think those of us who are lucky enough to keep them around longer, you know, don't, don't experience that. But I think that it's one of those moments where, like, you know, I remember just shortly before that, like, my first pet was hit by a car. And I was like, why? I've lost her, you know. And, and I think that that bled into... Again, my sense of this figure who is important, who passed, and who seemed young, and that they shouldn't have passed, like in Karen Carpenter. Yeah. And at nine, going on 10, did you know what anorexia was? Oh, I had zero clue what it was. I mean, you know, I read voraciously, and actually I was kind of interested in tabloid journalism. <laughs> like, I was just like, ooh, what's this? So I was like, you know, pick up tabloids in the Philippines and, like, wherever my family would travel because I loved you know, star gossip or whatever. And so I'd heard a few things about it in that context, but it really, I think that actually her death brought a lot of focus to the issue for a much wider audience of people. I think it really brought light to the issue. I always just think when we introduce larger audiences to things like anorexia or bulimia, there's a fair amount of people who are learning about it for the first time and learning that it's an option. So it's like, if you don't talk about it appropriately, they're like, oh, I can do that too. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's it's true. Like, it, it's always such a double-edged thing, right? It's sort of like spreading awareness about something or creating consciousness around something can have the effect of in, inciting people to try it, as you're saying. Fascinating. Yeah. And you said you grew up in the Philippines. Why did your family move to America? Well, so many different reasons. My Mom fell in love with an American, a white American, who I grew up with as my stepdad, Jimmy. Jimmy Dykes, great last name. I should have taken it, right? It would have been awesome. And so they fell in love. They were young. He was working as an arranger and musical director for one of her godparents' musical acts in Manila. And she happened to be performing in the same venue. And they met, fell in love. And basically, he's like, come, you know, come to Hawaii, whatever. And so we spent time there until basically a family event and my stepfather's family brought us back to California, which is where he was originally from. And I say back to California, even though we'd never lived there, but brought us to California when I was 10. And so it was like, you know, really like a kind of random set of circumstances that like stimulated those movements. You know, it was love. It was, you know, familiarity. It was those sorts of things that brought us. And speaking of that, a recurring thing I hear from people who moved around as much as you did as a kid Mm -hmm. is that they learn to make friends super easily wherever they go. Mm -hmm. You were quite the opposite, right? Well, I don't know. I think that... When I was little, maybe I didn't make it, you know, like, although I have to say, my mom has a story where, like, they were playing a gig in Hawaii, one of the, not in Honolulu, but in, I think it was, like, Kauai or somewhere, and I was, I must have been, like, seven years old, and I, they, 
tried to leave me with a babysitter in the hotel room upstairs. And at some point, I guess I like dressed myself and snuck down and cruised my way into the lounge and like started chatting up the cocktail waitresses. That's basically describes my ethos for life at this point. So I think that, you know, I think that spending a lot of time with adults, but also spending a lot of time around show people and entertainers, entertainment made it easy for me to, yeah, like, I don't know, befriend people in different circumstances and situations, in addition to all the moving around stuff. And so when you did move to America, how long did it take before you felt like you fit in? Well, I think that that was a different thing. You know, like it's one thing to be like a cute little kid, to be surrounded by adults who tend to be more accepting, and then to be a young kid who's different and exposed to the cruelty of children, right? Little kids can be so damn cruel. And, you know, I was a tomboy. I didn't like really like... I mean, I don't even remember when I started brushing my hair. I think it was like when I actually went to school in the fifth grade. And like, because like someone was like, you haven't brushed your hair. I was like, what? I have to do that? And anyway, yeah, it took, it took like, I would say a little bit of, first I made friends with the boys who lived on my block, like in my suburban neighborhood in Southern California, because I wanted to play soccer. I wanted to play baseball. And so, you know, it was just another body playing soccer or baseball with them. But then once, you know, I started going to school is when I began to understand or confront all of the kind of gender norms, racial norms, and, you know, like, when I brought food that was weird, people would talk about it. You know, all the stereotypical kind of tropes of what it's like to be an alien in a new land. Which are stereotypes because they're real. Yeah, because they're real. Yeah, totally. So that was that was my experience. And it, it took, but you know, like again, I was a kind of quick study because we were in so many different contexts, so many different moments that I had to get used to. I eventually got used to that and then also found my way into that world. And with you being a tomboy growing up, I love that you write about your mother's efforts to untrouble your gender. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, you know, like every I like so many lesbians of my generation talk about like, you know, the culotte and the the pain that culottes caused or the squirt. Right. Because it's just sort of like, yeah, did your mom try to shove you into squirts all the time so that you like would vaguely look feminine, even though, you know, you obviously wanted to reject dresses and skirts and that kind of thing. And like it, it seems to be a kind of ubiquitous experience of, you know, baby butches for that to happen. And so, like, when did you stop caring about that kind of stuff? Well, I don't know. You know, I went through a deep period of caring about it the whole time I was in school, basically. So I didn't care about it until, you know, because I was taking correspondence courses. By the time we settled down in SoCal and I was going to, like, the sixth grade, middle school, high school, I cared about it a lot. And, you know, I cared about it so much that I like, did everything, like, I was always asked, like, you know, are you a boy or a girl or whatever, like, because people, you know, could see, I don't know, something, I don't know, there was something sporty about me. I don't know. You're right. That's the question you've been asked the most in your life. The most in my life. And then I started wearing giant earrings. The 80s and the 90s were an era where you could have very performative versions of femininity. So I had like huge hair, you know, long nails, cheesecloth tops, bodice type things. I mean, I don't know. I tried it, right? So I was very, very self-conscious about it. And then finally, I mean, it took me a very long time to finally let it go, I think. You know, like even I was already in graduate school when I was like, you know, I, I can cut my hair short. 
I can just like let go of the butch bob and the like rando lipstick and I can just inhabit because I look better this way. That was the thing too. It's just like that makes me look dowdy and strange and actually like look much more dashing the way I look now. Yeah. <laughs> so it was a big deal when you finally did cut your hair short. It was. It really was. I think, you know, when I finally just shed that last bit of of like gender trouble part and you know and even now like traveling is like really like when we talk about movement right like traveling is the place where I think I encounter the most gender trouble still and and there are just certain places that I visit I'm just like okay I'm just gonna pass as a dude like the whole time like I'm in in an airport here or in this particular country or whatever unless I absolutely and I have a an emergency like femme top (laughs) that I take with me sometimes I like to get into women's spas or things like that so that I don't get like chased or stopped and that kind of thing yeah. Oh, it's that. Oh, it's totally like that. I, I have these, I have a full outfit. Like, I have, like, this, like, boat-necked, like, kind of clingy tee and, like, spandexy capris that are so, I mean, it just makes me look uber faggy, actually. And I've still been stopped going into, like, the women's spa in Korea for that. Yeah. I mean, this is not any different than how I describe, like, butching it up to go home to the South. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, I, so like, you, you I heighten my, like, masculine performance, too. Do you have a voice? A- what do you mean? Do you, Is it do you, do you like voice? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I will drop it down a bit, and it definitely sounds like performative and fake. You know, it's not a successful like voice drop. <laughs> do you sound like Jackson Maine? Oh, definitely. No, I thought that sounded good. And like, I don't know exactly how it works, but like, I'm just like more cognizant of. Growing up, they would always call me expressive. Oh, oh he's yeah. so expressive, and so that was like coded language for faggot. You know, so for like outsider. It's like your movements. It's like holding your body like. Yeah. You know, crunching it in. Yeah. So it's like less about my like low voice and yeah. more about just like more of a sturdy posture. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. And like traveling anywhere. And I think you, you just sort of pick up on what the vibe is. And then you see, you know, until you can feel safe, you sort of sort out like, okay, how it is, how is it that I'm going to move through this space? Yeah. You know, I'll say one more anecdote. Like, there's a whole plane ride. I was taking all the way back from, like, Poland or something. But I was seated next to a man, an American man, a white guy. And he was, at some point, obviously, like, he... I realized he thought I was a dude and we were like getting ready to land at LAX and then he started inviting me to his church and to this Christian stuff and I was like and there's nothing wrong with that that's like really lovely but I was like oh I just really don't want to be like you know have the Victor Victoria moment right now (laughs) where he realizes that I'm not Ken Tongson because he misheard and I'm just like okay I just better get past him in customs he's like well I'm gonna look you up at USC and I'm like okay good luck <laughs> and sometimes it's just easier to let people think what they think and you go on with your lives exactly right? totally and everything we're talking about is about gender expression and not gender. Like, you've never doubted your gender as a woman, right? Yeah. I mean, I've never, like, I mean, I've ve- definitely skewed very mask in, in various ways. I mean, I understand people who want to leave the binary behind. And I'm fully supportive of, like, you know, really just recognizing gender as a construct. Or people who really want to lean into their masculinity or, or, like, not even just lean into it, but who, like, have to inhabit their masculinity in a way that is, you know, like, affirming for them. 
But for me, I think I always describe <laughs> I always describe my gender as Totino's party pizza. It's, you know, slightly artificial, but like really satisfying and, you know, a little bit cheesy. And so that's that's sort of how, you know, I, I find that gender is something that I don't know, is is fun and fluid and expressive and more power to anyone and everyone who explores its different iterations. And I think you saying that gender is fun, fluid and expressive is a new thing that we couldn't have said like 10 years ago. Right? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, even well, the, the hardness of that question, are you a boy or are you a girl? And, you know, and and the extent to which certain gender roles have loosened. At the same time, I think that people are entrenching themselves more and more into the kind of stability or conservative or old school versions of what masculinity and femininity mean. And that's that's very disturbing. That's the countervailing force of newer and younger generations of people feeling more free is that the minute that happens, people have to shut it down or try to shut it down. Yeah. Well, tell me this. You teach gender studies. Mm -hmm. That's one of your courses. Yeah. As the public's understanding of gender has evolved so much in the just last like five to seven years, has the field of gender studies like changed a lot? Oh, it's absolutely shifted. I've been teaching for 14 years now at USC, and I was hired to teach in gender studies and English in 2005. And how I taught it then versus how I teach it now, it's just it's transformed dramatically. The classroom dynamics have shifted so remarkably. And... Actually, you know, one of the things that's most important, I think, for people in my position who are veterans at this gig is to listen to younger generations of people. At some point, I I realized, you know, there are a lot of things that uh, and ways that people learn about gender and sexuality that I may, you know, that wasn't part of my experience, but is such a central part of the experience for for younger people, whether or not it's learning about these things on YouTube, learning about like all the different like expressions of like demi pan or like <laughs> demi pan pizza or whatever you know whatever it is. I, I I chide, but it's it helps to ask a young person what those terms are to to like ask what they think those terms are instead of thinking that I always remain a stable authority on these matters. I have to seek out you know writing not only by younger scholars but ways that you know, people in the community are expressing who they are. So how do you see your students seeing and relating to gender differently? I think that there's a lot of tentativeness that a lot of people like, you know, it's so funny. The last time I taught intro to LGBT studies, one person who was a returning student, slightly older, said, you know, I'm here because I need to learn what it's okay to say and what the right terms are. And, you know, which is not the purpose of the class at all and by any means, right? We're like, you know, it's not like, and that's sort of the stereotype of like gender studies classes, like we're indoctrinating you to be like hypersensitive to these terms. But, it, you know, it speaks to me to a kind of collective sense or affect that people are experiencing. I think that we should reorient ourselves and think it shouldn't be about like, what are we allowed to say? But it's like, how can I know more? How can I know enough to interact with people in a way that's respectful? How can I find out about their histories and what's important to them or their contributions to culture in a way that allows me to, you know, address people with respect? I think that's the way to reframe it. And I think that hopefully, I hope that that's what happens in the classroom now uh, when when I teach these courses.
And also, they're like seven years ago, they're reading about trans and non-binary people in books, yeah. right? And that is kind of their only exposure to this like type of people that they don't have any experience with. And yeah. now I feel like they're like looking around their classmates and oh, they're yeah. seeing people of all different gender histories in front of them. Oh, absolutely. That was definitely something, too, that arose as conflict at different moments, too. And and not just, your, you know, like people who struggle with like using proper pronouns and understanding people's, you know, preferred gender expressions or, like, preferred gender identities aren't just, like, you know, conservative straight white people. They're also, like, queer people, you know, and queer people of color, like, who, like, make those mistakes, you know, and and who, like, have to learn uh, how to engage their, you know, trans, you know, brothers and sisters and thems and theys, right? So. And I think, too, like, people can be so wary about gender nonconformity, and yet I argue to say that so many of us have people in our families who are gender nonconforming. And your grandmother was an example of that. You said she cut all of her hair off on the night of her wedding. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the thing is that, you know, the other aspect of my my own biography is that I grew up around queer and gender nonconforming people. Also, like, outside of the U.S., there are so many different models of, like, and so many different models of gender and sexuality that people grow up around, like, and have historically. But they probably just didn't label it in their minds as gender nonconforming. Yeah, exactly. They're just like, well, so, like, my grandmother's best friend was the first, in in her words, in, in her friend's words, the first post-operative trans woman in the Philippines. Her name was Lisa Amor. And and she was my youngest aunt's godmother. And my grandmother, you know, when she used to tell stories, she said, oh, I was very popular among the gay, meaning among the gays, I guess, plural. And she used to judge, like, beauty contest, like, drag beauty contests and things like that. And, and, and I asked her, how did you meet these folks? And she's like, oh, my friend Arthur, who's an artist, right? And so, like, you know, part of the bohemian milieu that my family was in, you know, exposed me to different people. And it wasn't just people who were artists either, but, but you know, when I came out to my mother, or rather when she dragged me out, one of the things she said was, well, you know, I went to Catholic school. I'm familiar with these things. Oh. So, yeah. So, like, you know, the kind of... So she's like, I've been around, what do you call them, butches? You know, so my... You know, so it's also like... I think that there's a like queer awareness that we were surrounded by and also like a you know again a kind of queer life everyday life at least in in, in the the situation that I was growing up in. And so what do you mean when you say that your mother dragged you out of the closet? Well, we had a fight. I mean, so it wasn't like I had like this thing planned and you know I it wasn't like I was like, "Mom, I need to talk to you." That's not how it happened. It's like my mom and I were fighting about something else that was related to her. And I was giving her a hard time about something. And then she responded to me by saying, well, you know, quit saying that. I never I never make you tell me about, like, your sexuality. And then it was like, dun, 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 hard pause. And then my first response was, how long have you known? And I'd actually only been, like, I guess out to myself and actively homosexual for, like, about, you know, I mean, it was less than a year because I think it was really hard. For, I really tried hard to be normal, right? I tried hard to be a straight, uh, and it just didn't work. I just ended up, like, every time I dressed up for prom, I looked like Jujubee from Drag Race. <laughs> and anyway, so 
Yeah, so that's how it was. So it wasn't like this deliberate coming out process. It was a kind of like improvisational, it just happened kind of moment. Wow. That uh, that was quite a long time, time ago. Would you consider her to be like cool with it now? I mean, she's so super cool. I mean, that's again, she she was also raised in the same environment that I was. So she was, as she said, you know, uh, surrounded by my grandmother's gay friends. And my grandmother herself never identified as queer or gay or whatnot. But she certainly, you know, had that matriarchal streak to her. But like a lot of parents, she was like, well, maybe you're just bisexual or whatever. And and But she offered that as an option, actually, like immediately. So it wasn't like, you know, you are cast out of here, get away. And they were kind of instantly okay with it. There are different things that I've had to, like, talk to her about. Like, at some point, you know, some of my partners would get annoyed because, you know, she'd just call us the girls or, you know, in- imply that, like, you know, we were siblings or our daughters or something. I was like, be clear. She's my partner. We're not like like weird sisters here, like that kind of situation. So, um, yeah, but she's, you know, my parents are incredibly supportive. They're super supportive of the fact that I'm not having kids, you know. They treat my cats as if they're their grandchildren. They're really, really That's wonderful gay people. Rights. That's gay rights, right? We found it. Exactly. That's really nice. What year was it when you moved to America? 1983. So within, we moved here a month after Karen Carpenter died. Wow. I, I asked about the timeline because that was right, like, right before, like, the AIDS crisis was, like, gearing up in oh, Southern yeah. California. How aware were you of it at the time? Totally. I sat with my parents and watched an early frost on television. And my mother's funny remark was, Karen, your dad and I just want you to know that if you are ever pregnant or gay, we will still love you. Wow. Just tell us. She's like, you know, because the whole takeaway from seeing that film and just from these other televised stories about gayness and silence was just like, you know, basically, if if you don't tell us that you need something or that you need help, we can't be there to love you or to respond to it or whatever. And so that was very, very touching. And that was really lovely. And so I do remember it. And I also remember the AIDS crisis really deeply impacted me, partly probably because I was wrestling internally and unconsciously sometimes, subconsciously with my own sexuality. And so it made me really afraid as like as a middle school kid, you know, in suburbia, not having sex, I was scared yeah. of, of like what it would mean to become sexually active. And, and I asked that because so much of the history of AIDS, like the poster boy is someone who looks like me, right? Mm. They're like the skinny white kid. Mm-hmm. Um, gay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm outing myself. <laughs> and I think that one, we know that's not who affects AIDS, right? Yeah. But also I think that like we kind of can assume that like women were unfazed by the crisis Mm. that had no bearing on them at all when it affected all of us in the community so heavily. I think so. And actually, um, one of when I got to high school, the band director who was the director of the marching band took a leave of absence or like quit his job. And, you know, I wondered why. And then I realized that he had AIDS. And, you know, so I saw him at a grocery store and he had taught us in middle school and he, his body was transformed. So, like, you know, I was exposed at a very young age to seeing a person with AIDS, you know, and, and it was it was closeted. It wasn't, like, explicitly released information, but it was apparent, 
and the whole safe sex thing, all of the messages around that, like I really deeply internalized, I guess because I was, yeah, had different forms of exposure to different queer communities at that time and all the way through into the early 90s as well. You know, um, I, I, in the pilot episode for the new podcast that Winter Mitchell Rohrba and I are doing called Waiting to Exhale, which is about Generation X, we sort of talk about the scene in Reality Bites where Janine Garofalo's character is waiting for two weeks to get her, like, HIV test results. And I remember getting my first test and being really, really nervous and waiting out the first two. It was, like, 1992, I want to say. So it was, like, a similar time. And I was just stressed out, even though, you know, I was pretty low risk, (laughs) you know, at the time. Well, you mentioned Rally Bites. That's a great segue into talking about like pop culture, yeah. just because you write and teach so much about it. Mm-hmm. We're now seeing pop culture be taken very seriously. That's pretty new, right? Yeah. I mean, I think there are many reasons for that. One reason that's really unfortunate is it's because we have a reality TV show star who is elected president of the United States. And I think that people who didn't realize the kind of effects or power that pop culture, TV, reality television in particular had, the, the, the kind of larger impact it had on our culture, where people who wouldn't acknowledge that now are finally confronted with the truth that, oh, you have to acknowledge that this thing is more powerful than you think it is. These media are more powerful than you think it is. I've never heard anyone phrase it like that. Well, I mean, I think that that's, I think it's something that we have to learn. I think there are media, media scholars who are writing about that, but... Um, you know, that's my no, it makes of, perfect yeah, sense. that's like my real simple and sim- simple way of framing that for us. And then you coined the term norm porn. History is made. Could you, can you explain to everyone what you mean by that? Norm porn. For me, norm porn is uh, basically the pleasure that queer people take. And uh, queer people, queer people of color, people who are outside the mainstream norm, right? Although we can debate that who's in that norm because it's become so expansive. But And it's the pleasure and prurience that we experience when we watch really normy, family-based, usually dramedy programming. So, like, people always say, oh, like, Modern Family, sort of, but, like, I'm, I'm talking about shows like Parenthood, shows like This Is Us, shows like 30-something from back in the 80s. Like, you know, at the moment, like, the kind of new or neoliberal, like, extended family with friends and with liberal social points of view where everybody just seems so exciting, but at the same time, they're still, most of them, really straight, really affluent, really normy, and, and you know, it's stuff that radical queers are supposed to reject, but that we cry to nonetheless. And so it's its its, its own form of, like, emotional pornography to, like, participate in, in, like, sobbing along to these shows. And you're not saying that in a judgmental way, right? Oh, no, I love, I mean, I was like, I love porn. No, I, I never use porn pejoratively in a bad way <laughs> to describe anything. It's almost nice since the, like, early history of queer representation all involved our death, right? Yeah, yeah. And it is, like, this sort of, I mean, to the point where it's, like, in the show Parenthood, Sarah Ramos's character, like, who goes off to Cornell and then comes back a lesbian with a girlfriend, like, they have one episode about it. Everyone accepts it within like the 40 minutes of that episode and then we never see them again. And it's just sort of like, what? What happened? It's just like, okay, moving on. 
you know, and there are other daily things that we should be upset about, like remodeling the bathroom or whatever, right? Other bourgeois things that we should be concerned about. But anyway, like, you know, yeah, so it is like kind of seeing these imperfect representations or non-representations or like you know, schmaltzy representations and just letting ourselves go to town emotionally when we watch them. We're almost out of time. Before I let you go, though, you mentioned your new podcast, Waiting to Exhale. I believe that when this podcast ourselves airs, it'll be out. But you tell me. In the beginning of July, it will be widely widely distributed, available on all your favorite pod platforms, and regular episodes will be out henceforth in July. And yeah, you'll have fresh episodes of Waiting to Exhale, a queer woman of color take on Gen X culture. And it's you and... Winter Mitchell Rohrbaugh, who I did Pop Rocket podcast with. Amazing. Well, thank you for talking to us today. It was such a pleasure to be here. Thanks. That was Karen Tonkson. Her book is called Why Karen Carpenter Matters, and her new podcast is called Waiting to Exhale. That is it for today. We'll be back next week with another interview, so make sure that you're subscribed to the podcast. And then until then, come find me on social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at JeffMasters1. Those are also great ways to connect and recommend guests for the show. We are produced by Luminary Media, Nyan Hum Media, and The Advocate. The Advocate is one of the longest-running LGBTQ news magazines in the world. Come check us out at our website at advocate.com. LGBTQ&A is produced by Zach Stafford, Jonathan Hirsch, John Asante, Car Navadia, and myself, with sound engineering by Scott Somerville and Mark Bush. We'll see you next week. Music